Hello and welcome to this week's roundtable edition of The Bunker, the GB news for woke liberal snowflakes. I'm your host, Andrew Harrison. On today's podcast, Unlucky 7, Boris Johnson's attempt to launch Global Britain at the G7 falls flat with a rare démarche rebuke from the US over the Northern Ireland Protocol and the prospect of an actual sausage war. What does it all mean? Plus, smile, you're on Rillo Vision. We watch GB News so you don't have to. That sale of your NHS data to private medical companies, what's behind it and can you opt out? And after cricketer Ollie Robinson is suspended from the England team over a series of racist and sexist tweets in his youth, exactly how long ago is it before an online indiscretion can be forgotten? Love's got the podcast in motion. It's today's podcast. Right, welcome to the Crucible. It is our boiling hot virtual studio. Let's have a look at today's team sheet. Up front, she's good in the air with a commanding presence in the six-yard box because the studio is literally six square yards. It's Times Radio host Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. <laughs> hello, hello. Uh, thoughts on Scotland's game against the Czechs today and Scotland's game against England on Friday? Anything, uh, you know? Well, I basically don't know anything about uh, football. Um, so I went to get my nails done um, <laughs> because I thought that would be a better use of my time. But obviously Scotland lost because Scotland, I mean, look, I'm kind of Indian and Scottish, so I don't have a lot of skin in the game when it comes to sport generally, mm. basically. So, uh, yeah, poor Scotland. I mean, it doesn't bode well uh, for the game against England on Friday. No, no, it doesn't. But I mean, I suppose the, the kind of politics angle, of course, is like whenever a national team has a good national tournament, immediately the, the kind of political leadership goes, and that proves that we're fantastic and we can do anything we like. <laughs> so, so if Scotland have a good Euros, or well, they've got two more chances to have a good Euros, what does that mean for Indy Ref 2? You know, we're on the road with Sturgeon's army and so forth. The, the great thing about the independence campaign is whatever happens to Scotland football team, it's always Westminster's fault. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it's basically... You know. But I'm sure um, uh, if England does manage to beat Scotland, I mean, let's just say that happens on Friday. I mean, who knows? And uh, it, it, Nicholas Sturgeon will be waiting for sort of Boris Johnson to sort of, you know, kind of uh, be disrespectful to the Scots. Boris Johnson will hopefully be... Uh, a bit gracious, but let's see. Our tricky winger today is journalist, editor, politics wonk and author of Nothing But A Good Time, The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Clam Metal. He's got a tasty left foot. It's Justin Bites Your Legs Quirk. Hi, Justin. Hi, Andrew. So it was quite cheering to see England fans drowning out the boos uh, against players taking the knee at the first England game. Of all the kind of the trollonists who said that people, you know, hated this, this, this protest, they misjudged the nation. Um, it was heartening, although what I thought was also interesting was how much that period before the game was a kind of Rorschach test in that immediately following the take in the knee, I saw people who just watched exactly the same clip posting completely different takes on what they'd just seen. But I think overall, when it shook out, I think the general consensus was, you know, there was a very minor amount of booing. They seemed to do, it, do the kneeling much more quickly than I've seen them do at other games. I presume a decision was made to you know, not try and make it a prolonged sort of focal point. Um, but yeah, I thought it was uh, it was encouraging. And in terms of, sort of misjudging the mood, I thought what it slightly reminded me of, and I hope we're going to see this as the tournament progresses, is that feeling that you had around that section of the right-wing media pushing the idea that sort of everyone had had enough of lockdown and we were about to kind of break out and re-seize our ancient freedoms when that view just didn't really seem to be getting that much purchase with the public. And aside from a few nutters, you know, you felt like they are pushing that idea uphill a bit. So hopefully this will also be uh, a case of the same. 
I mean, I would have to disagree with Justin that the pre-match build-up was anything like a Rorschach test because I watched it and none of it looked like my mother's breasts at all. Uh, <laughs> Who is this mystery voice in the future that we'll be coming to very shortly? It could be anyone. Stay tuned, <laughs> listeners, to find out. Justin, before we do that, I want to ask you, YouGov actually did poll people on the knee thing and they found that 54% of England fans were pro it and 39% were against. 39% isn't nothing, but, you know, we've we've done things like leaving giant trading blocks on a smaller margin than that, haven't we? So it's fairly, fairly decisive. Yeah, it's fairly decisive. And my hunch would also be that if you drilled down into that data and looked at particularly, say, like fans who are under 40, I suspect it would skew even more heavily in favour of taking the knee. My fear yesterday was that I think if England had lost... I think the narrative would have become a really depressing version of, you know, pampered elite liberal millionaires, their mind wasn't on the game because of all this politics. Um, I think them winning yesterday or winning reasonably decisively took quite a lot of the heat off that. Um, And I think hopefully as the tournament goes on, if they continue to win, I think the people who appear to be doing everything in their power to undermine and spook the team before each game will become an even more marginalised presence. Well, you know what happened? They were they were kind of mediocre, and then they became Marxists, and then it all started going right for them. So well, clearly, that's a great lesson for life, there, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Now, bringing it all together in a commanding midfield general position, you heard him through the miracle of time travel a moment ago. It's comedian, <laughs> broadcaster, HBO Max special coming soon. It's a here show. Hello, hello. Did you enjoy this weekend's football? Here, apart from poor old Christian Eriksen. Uh, I did indeed, and particularly with the exception of uh, that horrible event, I was very glad to hear that he seems to be on the mend now, but it's shocking to me that that game was just allowed to continue when presumably a lot of the players would have been concerned that their friend was dead uh, for a lot of it. But um, with with the exception of that, it was um, the very important exception of that. It was uh, very good to see uh, England start strong. And for the next few weeks, I will be like that uh, family on goodness gracious me who claimed that they're called uh, Sinjin Cooper or whatever it is, uh, because I, I love it. And it is indeed coming home. Well, you do know that Harry Kane's real name is Harry Harry Khan, don't you? <laughs> yeah, Harry Khan. I support him entirely. <laughs> <laughs> and just as we started recording, Boris Johnson announced that the June twenty first unlocking will not go ahead. Surprise, surprise! It's going to be a four week suspension until July the nineteenth. Is that right? Mm. I hear. What 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 does this mean for the lockdown skeptics? Are they going to get even more riled up? Uh, I, well, one can one can imagine so because I think that a, a, a strong breeze would rile them up. But um, I, it's it's at least you know it's it's not a full. The thing that I was really worried about was ending up in a as we have so many times before, uh, one step forwards, two steps back, uh, and the fact that it seems to more be holding the line here. Uh, is going to be a gigantic professional inconvenience from my perspective, uh, but at least means that it's not uh, like we're having to do an about face. So that's that's something at least. Aisha, Boris Johnson always waits till the last minute to make a decision. Is anybody surprised that this has gone right down to the wire? Uh, no, but also to be fair, a lot of epidemiologists were saying that they did need to wait because they're getting more granular data in, you know, sort of on a you know, day by day basis. So uh, I'm I'm probably slightly less critical of the government in terms of making this decision. And to be fair, they did 
brief it out. I mean, where they've made a huge mistake is over the border control, because this um, so-called Indian Delta variant, um, you know, I'm sure the sort of slack, lax border uh, controls definitely sort of help the situation. I mean, the people I do feel very, very sorry for are um, theatre, because they have, and hospitality, I mean, theatre particularly have been really banking on that date of the 21st of of June, trying to open things up. It's really hard for them to even break even when they're still socially uh, distanced. I spoke with um, Nika Burns uh, last night. She runs NYMEX Theatre, six theatres in the West End. I mean, they're just hemorrhaging money, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they, they've opened, they're, they're, they want to kind of, you know, do as much as they, they can. So uh, let's just hope that this 19th of July is really going to be the last date. But it is going to be interesting to see if Andrew Lloyd Webber gets arrested. <laughs> yeah, I know. Test me on a Sunday. Um, Justin, um, we were on course for 15,000 infections a day by the 21st of June anyway, even without any kind of uh, intervention. This may retard that a little bit, but it does raise the horrible thought that we may unlock on the 19th of July and then later in the year have to face more further, tighter lockdowns. Do you think the people are going to wear it? Um, Really, I think they probably will. Um, I mean, I, I think consistently throughout this, I think the public have been quite a long way ahead of where politicians think they are. It was interesting. I've been doing a lot of work over the last few months with I do a research project based looking at nightlife and what's going to happen in you know nightclubs and music industry post COVID. I'd say almost every club owner and promoter I've interviewed over the last couple of months, when I said, "Do you think June twenty first is going to happen?" I'd say about eighty percent of them said no. Like they all said, they were aiming mm. for mid, even late August. And if anything happened earlier, that would be a nice surprise. Um, but I think actually one thing I went back to, which was interesting, at the very start of COVID back in March, there's Thomas Payo's essay, The Hammer and the Dance, which was a, you can still find on Medium. And it predicted pretty much exactly where we've gone in terms of big lockdown to start with and then sort of successively lower and lower waves that will follow on from it. Um, and I say I read that right at the beginning and thought, well, actually, that's probably where we are for the next two years. So in terms of being forewarned, I'm not that surprised and I'm kind of resigned to the fact that there probably will be lockdowns of some kind coming down the pipe still. If last week's G7 summit in Cornwall was meant to showcase global Britain to the world, then it kind of missed the mark. The rest of the world did get a taste of British life for the past five years, desperately trying to move on from Brexit, yet somehow talking about it the whole time regardless. Boris Johnson closed the summit by suggesting the UK was indivisible after a row over the Northern Ireland Protocol with French President Emmanuel Macron, and the Brexit barney took attention away from two other issues at the meeting, securing COVID vaccines for poorer countries and raising enough money to fight climate change. Aisha, this was supposed to be the grand unveiling failing of proper global Britain and also low carbon Boris. Uh, instead, Johnson flew to Cornwall in a private jet and got that démarche from the US over the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. I think démarche is dip- diplomatic speak for a bollocking, isn't it? Um, I, d- I don't think it was really seen as a as a flop. That whole démarche thing, which sounds like a sort of jewel out of Bridgerton, <laughs> um, it was slightly contested by the by the White House. I mean, look, clearly they they're not hugely happy with with the situation but I I wouldn't go I mean I spoke to kind of a lot of people on my show about this over the weekend I I wouldn't go as far as to say that like Joe Biden gave Boris Johnson uh, a bollocking it's it's no secret that they're not uh, they're not like comfortable with the situation big big ties with Ireland big um, Irish caucus in uh, American politics I mean 
I think what we all have to realise is we're just not that important to mm-hmm. America anymore. I don't think Joe Biden was going to go out of his way to give Boris Johnson a bollocking. I think actually the optics between them were really good. I think Boris Johnson will be very pleased about how the pictures in terms of the the crucial body language between him and Joe Biden. I mean, it looked like they were getting on like an absolute house on fire. And all the um, sort of briefings from, you know, both sets of advisors were that they did get on really, really well. And of course, Joe Biden is very strategic. You know, his whole thing is he's incredibly charming. He's very, very courteous. He does want to have a good relationship with um, Britain. But I don't, I, I think we've got to be slightly realistic that Joe Biden is just going to sort of like stop everything he's doing and, and care about this that much. I, I don't know if he actually is. Well, that, 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 the choreography of the great looking pictures and the big smiles, that's that's the sign of a well-run summit rather than uh, decisions made, isn't it? Because, you know, we're, we're very aware that the whole thing is taking place in the middle of the of the sausage war and the standoff between the EU and the UK over, uh, you know, the, the yeah. end of the, you know, this little mini transition period about taking shield meats and other products a- across the border. Effectively, the whole thing has taken place against the backdrop of the UK trying to wriggle out of the deal that it signed. And everything that was coming out on the briefing front was that that trust in the UK has been badly, badly damaged. So the pictures might look great and, you know, Diamond Joe smiles all the time at everyone. But, you know, pretty much all the reporting was that Britain kind of came out of this with its, its reputation for being trustworthy and competent again damaged. Look, we've been here so many times before. I mean, this is just the perpetual standoff on Brexit. The main thing is, they said Brexit was going to get done. It's never going to get done. This is the absolute Mm. hangover from that, this um, interminable problem of the Northern Irish border. It's very funny because it's got the word sausage in it and the idea of a hard border involving sausages. We hear David Frost is going to get a grilling over sausages uh, this week in Parliament. Look, it is kind of ludicrous, but I mean, this is, it's like a never, I mean, I mean, it just shows to everybody. And, and this is where anybody who's Scottish listening, and I, I raised this actually with an SNP MP, this shows you how difficult all these border issues are when it's in dealing with the, with the EU. Very, very difficult. So yeah, I mean, do, do people think Britain have, has reached a new level of, of untrustworthiness? No, because I think that's priced in. I think people have just been looking at Britain for quite a long time as being quite untrustworthy on all of this stuff. Mm. Justin, you've got a fair bit of Irish in you. The clue's in the name. Um, Johnson, Rob, and the Conservative press uh, had performative fits over the weekend because Macron remarked that Northern Ireland was a separate country. What's the real significance of this? Or are we getting hung up on nothing? Well, I mean, technically it was what he said, but I think it depends mm. how you're minded. You know, if you're a fairly neutral observer, I think you'd say, look, he was clearly referring to a geographical territory and the idea of a separate land mass with different borders. And I think, you know, is you and Alex making the case on the uh, the bunker start your week. It's quite a difficult concept. There's even people within this country, I think, who don't you know fully understand it um, and you know how the different entities sort of slot together. Um, I think if you were say someone like Dominic Raab, who'd spent the conference getting a bit of a kicking and were looking for something which you could jump on to reclaim the moral high ground, you would perhaps be you know less charitable in the interpretation of it. But what I actually thought was more significant was then the speech which Macron gave later on on Sunday afternoon, which was subtitled and put up on Twitter, which was very, very clear, very precise and extremely blunt. Um, you know, he was saying, look, we fully understand your sovereignty. 
Brexit is the child of it. We've taken up thousands of hours of EU leaders' time. No other country has made us think so much about its sovereignty. All we're asking is that you respect and implement the deal which we negotiated on with you. And his payoff line said, you cannot carry on blaming the European Union for your own incoherence, which I thought was fairly unvarnished as, you know, uh, ministerial statements go. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty unvarnished. It also sort of tempts the rejoinder, hold my beer, because, it, you know, no British... Governing party has ever has ever gone bust by uh, blaming the EU for things. Um, ah, here, what did you make of the optics? We just took out the choreography, the pictures. There was that weird sort of team shot of them all kind of lined up but socially distanced, and it looked a bit like the arcade fire. And <laughs> also, sort of Johnson staggering around next to Macron, looking a bit like the creature from Young Frankenstein. It was kind of the candid picks often tell you more than the staged picks, don't they? Yeah, well, it's it's always fascinating when it's just these people because I guess it's true that they will understand what one another's lives are like, probably more than anyone else other than former people who've occupied those uh, offices. So you hope that behind closed doors, certain things actually can get done in a way that can't just necessarily get done through bureaucracies. And you hope that uh, Mr. Johnson's uh, fabled charm uh, does work. But equally, you end up worrying that, uh, particularly this is the case with... um, the border and things involving Northern Ireland, that if these problems are fundamentally insoluble based on the situation that we have at the moment, then it doesn't really matter how much charm you're able to wheel out or how fancy the specialised pasties are. Uh, You're just going to be trapped in the the thing of your own devising. Um, The Prime Minister had to face journalists in person for the first time in a while as well, and he looked pretty uncomfortable doing it. Sky's Beth Rugby, Channel 4's Gary Gibbon both pushed him really hard on Northern Ireland. Um, do you think he's – has he still got the touch that he used to have with being able to sort of outfox interviewers and uh, interlocutors? I think that with this particular issue, he might be saved by the fact that, as Justin was saying, it is uh, very – like it's it's a more difficult one to wrap your head around, and I wouldn't pretend that I'm able to wrap my head around it. But uh, unfortunately, from uh, my perspective, and I would think all of your perspectives as well, there has not to date seemingly been an issue that uh, Mr. Johnson couldn't obfuscate and prevaricate his way around. Uh, and you feel like eventually, uh, you know, haha, I'd like to see how old Burjo wriggles out of this one. Eventually, he'll stop being able to wriggle. Let's find out. I would actually go. Uh- Further than that, I mean, I don't think this row will do him any harm at all. He always wins with the public. And it doesn't matter if he doesn't have a great interview with Beth Rigby or Gary Gibbons. It it doesn't massively make that much of a difference to the electorate, as as we know. Um, And if anything, him having a good old ruck with the EU over the great British banger is going to solidify the people who voted for him at the last general election. And of course, he's got another by-election coming up with Batley and Spen. And if Labour lose that and the Conservatives win, then you know he's you know he's done it again. So the more you know people like us rail against him, and obviously we've got very good reason to rail against him, the more popular he becomes with the public. Paradoxically, yeah. Aisha, just away from the Brexit side of it, there there was the coronavirus vaccine pledge, a, a billion donations to the developing world, which was widely derided as about just under 10% of what's needed, particularly by Gordon Brown, who's right in The Guardian this morning. Overall, the G7 meeting, irrespective of how Boris Johnson did or did not do, 
can it be considered a success, a partial success? I mean, the tax thing did happen. Yeah, I mean, look, these things are really tangible in their successes. They, you know, they're, they are quite disappointing. It is a big talking shop. It is about the, the optic. I mean, I thought Gordon Brown was really good on this stuff and I was disappointed. And I think lots of people are disappointed about two things, the um, the, the failing short on the vaccines, but also on the climate change stuff as mm. well. Um, I thought it was a bit toothless and it's going to make people quite jittery ahead of COP26. And it's going to make people think, God, I hope that's not just, you know, more warm words. But I think the really interesting thing about this G7 um, was that I think the optics for Boris Johnson were pretty good. I think the optics for Carrie Johnson were absolutely excellent. And she will have felt that she has vanquished Dominic Cummings, you know, once and and for all. And she's absolutely dominant now in terms of the court of number 10. But all eyes were on Joe Biden. This was really Joe Biden's G7. And this was a chance for Joe Biden to say, look, geopolitics matters again. America is back again. We care about this stuff. He will see the EU has been very important in terms of the rise of China, dealing with um, Putin as well. So for me, it felt like geopolitics was very much back and the concept of you know multilateralism was back after years of, of America first. And it's very interesting that they've gone straight into NATO now. Um, so mm. for me, I felt it was like Biden's G7 rather than Boris's G7. Next up, we watch Channel Brillo. It wasn't just football at the weekend. On Sunday night, the nation was glued to the launch of GB News, Andrew Neil's new venture, which plans to be a breath of fresh air in British broadcasting and escape from the metropolitan bubble. And definitely not British Fox News with old windbags airing their reaction reviews while a track of young women nod along. The first <laughs> night was somewhat lo-fi with the sound going out and the cheapo set somebody described as Andrew Neil in a hostage video. Best take was comedian Glenn Moore saying, GB News looks like when an ITV drama has a news flash and they're not allowed to make it look too real in case it confuses the viewers uh here what did you make of drop the dead gammon did you did you watch well, much <laughs> i did watch it uh i watched it i was traveling uh back to london from near liverpool this morning and so caught up on it and initially thought oh the northern rail 4g is terrible and then realized that that was actually just the quality that they were broadcasting in because i could see the gbn thing in the corner in perfect uh in perfect HD. Uh, so yes, teething problems, I suppose, uh, which as someone who's, you know, made, made TV before, uh, and will hopefully continue to do so, I can, uh, sympathize with, but fundamentally, I think the channel is very much not for me. And, uh, mm. Mr. Neil made that very, very explicit in his, uh, opening monologue where he effectively painted a five minute word portrait of me, uh, and was like, this is who shouldn't watch this. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, sort of beyond the, uh, the kind of setting out of the store, there was, a, there was a rather a weird refrain that they kept hammering. This seems to be something that they've hammered down as a kind of brand identity. If it matters to you, it matters to us, which could mean an awful lot of things. And um, it does seem to be, you know, the, the, the plan seems to be to, to, to bypass the gatekeepers and so forth and go straight to the real people, wherever the real people might, might be. Mm. And they're clearly going really hard on woke, aren't they? I mean, this line about we're going to puncture the pomposity of elites and expose their promotion of cancel culture. Is this a real thing in the world or is or is, or is woke something that is kept alive more by angry telegraph pieces and uh, and TV items like this than, than any kind of sort of genuine three-dimensional existence? 
Well, it's it's all got very uh, words mean what I want them to mean, right? And uh, mm. I suppose we all know what Andrew Neil means when he uh, uses the word in the same way that uh, several years ago, uh, when activists in the United States started using the word, we know what that meant, uh, but they just happen to be extraordinarily different things. So <laughs> I don't know. It's as as you say, this is for quote-unquote, real people uh, of which I am consistently uh, surprised that I am not one because I certainly Mm. feel uh, soft. (laughs) And it's all basically uh, just, you know, like on the identity politics thing, it's a bunch of white people not acknowledging that white identity politics is also identity politics because they regard their identity as fundamentally neutral. Uh, So I just think we're going to see a lot of that. Mm. One thing that stood out to me strangely was a, almost a kind of a plaintive need for positivity. You know, tell us what's great about your community, what's great about where you are. Tell us positive news. Tell us, tell us happy stories. And I, th- I was actually, although clearly this is not for me either, but it, it seemed to be something, you know, almost rather touching. This kind of need for 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 a, a bit of good news from their side of the um, of, of the argument, even though their side of the argument has been winning it for the past ten years, yeah, or is or are they just is is there some kind of weird aggressive self pity going on in that that slice of modern Britain? Do you think? I suppose that there's uh, this feeling of uh, winning the political battle and losing the cultural war, uh, mm. which. Um, animates a uh, lot of this uh, thing. And I, I suppose I can sort of understand that even if I don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, but to me, what's extremely positive about uh, Britain at the moment, uh, and specifically England, and I do think that this is going to be quite a specifically English phenomenon if it gets to be the stage of phenomenon, Um But the thing that was really exciting for me as a boy who grew up 500 yards from Wembley Stadium is that Raheem Sterling, a boy who grew up 500 yards from Wembley Stadium, scored the sole and only winning goal for England on the same day. That's the positive story for Mm. what's happening in our country uh, going forward. And I think is exactly the sort of story that because it gets tied up in knee taking and a successful young black man, uh, a lot of the contributors to GB News seem less keen on. Aisha, you're in broadcasting, obviously. What did you think of the debut of Channel You Can't Say Anything These Days? <laughs> We've talked about this before, and I've, you know, I haven't been as vitriolic against it as many other people have been because, you know, I work for lots of different broadcasters. I, I think plurality in broadcast is is a good thing. So I definitely um, watched it with with quite an open mind. And I know quite a lot of people that have gone to work for it, really, really good people. I know Gloria De Piero, she was on Times Radio. I know loads of producers that have gone to work for them as well. Um, but I was quite surprised how sort of shonky the first outing was. Um, I mean, I think Andrew Neil is a brilliant, brilliant interviewer. I think he is the best political interviewer in this country. I was gutted that he left the BBC. His election interviews were absolutely brilliant to the point where Boris Johnson was too frightened to, to, to even sort of turn up and, and do him. I think it's a shame that he is now sort of, you know, involved in this, to, to be honest, because I do think Andrew Neil is Just like... It's it's genuinely really surprising for Boris Johnson to be afraid to turn up and do someone as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So I don't know. I just thought the whole thing was, you know, I was expecting something very, very different. I was expecting, you know, I was like, fine, I'm going to be really open minded about it. Let's see what issues they cover. You know, I news can be a bit stale in this country. I was like, fine, maybe they are going to shake things up. And then Dan Wooten comes on mm-hmm. and it was just, oh, mm-hmm. Megan, slag off Megan Markle, tick, slag off BLM tick you know then Nigel Farage pops up it was just like it was every single sort of predictable thing like they just went for so I was like hang on a minute you're meant to be surprising us you're meant to be doing something very different I dipped into it again today and this morning they were having a go at migrants um and then again having another go at uh, BLM and, and footballers who are taking the, the knee. And I was like, my God, I feel like this is the same um, sort of subjects, you know, on a loop. But look, even though it's clearly not meant for people like us, clearly, 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 and everybody will give it a, a, a right all kicking, all the, you know, liberal newspapers and all that stuff, we, we'll slag it off and laugh at it. It may well do very well because we do know there is a market for this type of thing. The culture wars, and I slightly disagree with her here, I think there is something happening in the culture wars. I do think not all of it is of substance, but some of it is of substance. I think it might do quite well with numbers. Even last night, got big, much bigger numbers than Sky. Um, so it, it, it could. I think it could be quite successful, even though we may mock it. I think it could be pretty successful. The other thing which I thought was was interesting is that they have you do you did kind of allude to this in your intro. They've got a lot of old men, um, hmm. but they do, and and this is the one thing I will give them some credit for. They've got more diversity than I think I've seen out of any broadcasting outfit, including our own here. I mean, they have hired a lot of young black talent, and I do think that is one thing which is actually quite good i was quite impressed by that to be honest because lots of broadcasters talk a good game on this and they never ever ever hire you know interesting on-screen young black talent one of the things that struck me weirdly was the was the furniture and the graphics because i don't i've been expecting you know kind of lightning bolts from the news command module real day-to-day stuff real kind of news banger really kind of strident and actually what you got was this almost kind of uh, allied carpets chill out room type of effect of you know just sort of gently gently moving union jack graphics and and uh, not you know a, a sound bed rather than a, a rattling kind of call to arms do you think that their audience wants to be calmed rather than riled up no 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 i think this is these are teething problems i mean the 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 tech was so terrible and the set was so so terrible and the lighting was so terrible i mean everything it was absolutely hilarious when they tried to interview like alan sugar and all the tech broke down and he was like mm-hmm. grumbling saying they should use his tech and all that stuff but look as we know te- tech can be fixed right and the set can be fixed and they probably will do all of all of that but what's going to be fascinating and very for me worrying is to see if there really is a commercial market for televised culture war stuff. Uh, and my gut tells me in a very slightly sickening way that there probably is. Well, Justin, uh, GB News is arriving in the very week that News UK, Rupert Murdoch's News UK, wrote down the value of The Sun, the original culture war entity, down to literally zero pounds. It's described now on the News UK balance sheets as, as of no value. And Murdoch himself dropped his own plans for a UK version of Fox. Do you think there is that space for that for that kind of right wing sort of it's reported Jeremiah, doesn't it? Is there space for that? Um commercially, the market would suggest no. 
Um, you know, I mean, I mean, news generally is notoriously difficult to make money from. I think, you know, by the last numbers I saw, Sky News still loses £40 million a year. Um, you know, it's soaked up a billion pounds worth of investment. I mean, it's it's essentially a loss leader for the the rest of the portfolio. So, yeah, I think as, as a market case, no, there probably isn't a space in the market. Whether there's a space for it culturally that someone is then prepared to underwrite in order to gain you know, influence the toehold in the discussion. I think that's obviously a very different uh, different argument. And given that I think Legatum are largely bankrolling this from what I can work out along with other investors, I presume that's the calculation which has been made. Yeah, uh, GB News bankrolled by investors who are not in the UK and the chairman is somebody who lives in France, GB News. What, what did you think about overall, Justin? Well, I mean, it was to echo to Aisha and Nahir's point, I mean, it was woeful in terms of the quality. I mean, there was... I was trying to think what it reminded me of, and I suddenly thought of do you remember when ITV first went all night and they had night network, and the whole thing had this sort of slightly odd feeling of like an episode of the James Whale radio show where you suddenly <laughs> had to sit hours to fill, and I kept expecting like Charlie Chuck and News Bunny to come to one. <laughs> Wayne Hussey was being interviewed on some sofas, but visually it had that kind of look. I mean, it reminds you just how much money and expertise you know, the BBC and Sky News use to make themselves look as good as they do, because this stuff is very, very difficult to do on the on the cheap. I think, to Aisha's point, I would agree. I think Dan Wooten is televisual kryptonite. I mean, he's, mm. he just comes across so weirdly, but every link was this sort of weird stilted delivery, like he was either about to start screaming or bursting into tears. But I think the problem they've got... And, you know, if we accept that the point of the channel is basically to sort of stoke a culture war, I think the problem they're going to run into structurally is that trolling doesn't work when everyone agrees with you. And you've seen this is sort of a complaint when you look on kind of right wing forums and things. It's one of the things that everyone hates about a platform like Gab, which was supposed to be, you know, the right wing anything goes alternative to Twitter. So everyone's going, well, you know, I went on there and made a load of Holocaust jokes and everyone just agreed with me. You know, where's the fun in that? <laughs> and if your raison d'etre is to, you know, own the libs and offend them, so, I mean, what they want is to be on the BBC offending everyone. You know, they want to be on shows like this where they can piss people off. So I think that's maybe the thing they're going to run into is that more than anything, it's just exceptionally boring watching a room full of people agree with Dan Wooden. Well, the, the only thing I'd say on that is that what they are trying to, and I know this because I know a lot of people who they've been in contact, they are trying to get like different people to come into the to the studio so that they can have those disagreements. So their ideal guest will be somebody from Navara Media coming on and having an absolute mother of a ruck with them or somebody who's going to come on and absolutely you know rightly lay into them on Meghan Markle or Black Lives Matter or whatever that is what they want and they will get people because they pay they're paying people a lot of money I mean that really is like the event horizon of everything that's terrible in broadcast isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aaron Bastani going up against Dan Wooden is just on a channel you're not watching Justin so that's what's the problem with that Alien v Predator, like can everyone just die at the end of this? But but I think that's I think for that to work, and I agree that could be a model, but you need a host who is more intellectually agile and nuanced. And I think someone like I don't like him, but someone like Piers Morgan can get away with that because you don't always know exactly yeah. what he's going to think yeah. about every single subject. 
You've probably had the text already. NHS Digital plans to sell patients' private healthcare data to international businesses. You have till 23rd of August to opt out, but it's not easy. You literally have to use a paper form. And if you want to use certain GPs' online booking services, you will be assumed to have consented to this. So what does it all mean for everybody's privacy? And should we worry about it? Phil Booth is the coordinator of Med Confidential, a group which has campaigned for patient confidentiality since 2013. Hi, I'm uh, Phil Booth. I'm the coordinator of Med Confidential, and we've been campaigning for patient consent and confidentiality since about 2013. The current plan, the current government GP data grab, which is being executed by a central body called NHS Digital, is that the entire GP history, that's every recorded medical event, in the GP record of every patient registered with a GP in England will be extracted, taken to NHS Digital from where it will be sold on to third parties for a variety of uses, some of which are clearly legitimate and useful, uh, research, ethical research and planning, but some of which are through and to commercial companies. There are some obviously good reasons why you would want to do things with people's data. Um, It can help very much with research, but this data is also incredibly valuable. Uh, Without dispute, there are many companies around the world, you've probably seen the Googles and Amazons and other AI companies and everyone wanting to get a hold of rich personal data like medical data in order to make uh, new uh, AI chatbots or diagnostic assistants or all sorts of things which they can then you know, generate huge profits from, possibly you know, replace aspects of the way that healthcare is delivered at the moment. Uh, we've certainly seen bits of that during the pandemic. And obviously to sell their stuff back to the NHS. So for an individual patient, what this GP data grab means is that every single medical event, every diagnosis, symptom, observation, treatment, medication, vaccination, immunization that you have had since you were registered with a GP, which in many people's cases is shortly after birth, all of that information and each item of that information will be attached to your NHS number, your full postcode and your date of birth. That includes things around sexually transmitted infections, around uh, HIV AIDS, around domestic abuse and domestic violence, even child abuse, because people do say things that are highly personal, very intimate to their doctor because they need help, they need care. The biggest risk here for any individual is that they cannot trust that what they say to their doctor can and will be kept in confidence. You can look at things, we believe, through statistics that are generated in a really safe way in order to do many of the things, which many of the positive things which are being talked about. And, you know, if you add in this incredibly rich GP data about everyone, every man, woman, and child in England, then you need to do it in a way that it can be trusted because the data set, the only 
data set that is worth having is one that everyone can trust. Finally, you probably read about England cricket debutant Ollie Robinson being suspended over a series of historical racist and sexist tweets. Robinson was 18 when he posted the tweets back in 2012, and despite apologising for them, he has since been dropped from the England squad and is now taking a short break from cricket for his mental health and well-being. Both Boris Johnson and Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden criticised the England and Wales Cricket Board, branding their decision to suspend Robinson as over the top. But he's not the first person to be punished for historic tweets. Are we too prosecutorial on this? Ah, here, the mining of offensive tweets in the recent and further distant past is now a steady source of news stories. At what point do you have to treat them as so far in the past that, you know, an apology will suffice and, and they're done and dusted? I mean, I guess probably your your dream scenario is that Twitter didn't exist when you were a child, uh, and so the the ideal would be is that if you if you're at least thirty five, you've probably got a sweet spot uh, going on there. It's great. Take it from me. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't uh, think that this is uh, stuff that's particularly sort of in Ollie Robinson's uh, heart as an older guy, and uh, at some point contrition has to be met with forgiveness, otherwise heaven gets very lonely mm. that that was very kind of heartfelt and country music of you there that sounded yeah. like it should be appearing on a local line dancing event um <laughs> yeah i mean the, well the, the tweets from ollie robinson were the kind of the kind of idiot thing that idiot teenage boys come out come out with when they think they're being cool and in the cold light of five minutes later they looked dreadful but is it you know, is it too much to sort of, you know, 10 years later or nearly 10 years later say this is it, you must kind of pay a, make, pay a public price for something? Well, I, I think it's going to be a really interesting thing that will be developing over the next few decades when people who were children as digital natives uh, enter maybe their 40s and 50s and you'll end up with someone uh, vying to be prime minister who said something uh, silly when they were a child uh, or anything. I mean, plenty of them will have said things that are much worse as adults. Um, but so I think we are going to have to, over the course of the next few works, come up with some sort of framework that will allow for the fact that it is a very different world when you have people growing up as digital natives and things being broadcast and forever. Yeah, well, I mean, we sort of moan that we don't have real people in politics and real people in positions of power. We have these these, these people who've, who've been planning since the age of 10 uh, to, to get where they want to be. So hence, there's never any indiscretions. I mean, should, shouldn't we be accepting that human beings are imperfect and do stupid things when they're kids? I mean, c- case in point, that story of the, uh, of a, the Teen Vogue recruited a young woman called Alexi McCammond. She would have been the third black woman to be a senior editor at Teen Vogue. And then she had to withdraw because a journalist found old tweets when she'd been fairly offensive about an Asian teaching assistant when she was a teenager. She'd already apologised for this, but that wasn't enough. Yeah, we're actually at the beginning of this uh, rather mm. than anywhere approaching the middle or end, just this this is the future. Yeah. Ayesha, what, what do you think of this kind of you know one strike and you're out? Where does that leave us? Well, I'm afraid that leaves us with this phenomenon that there is a bit of cancel culture. There is. Mm. But what is interesting is how do we move forward when people make a mistake or they do something bad? Are they allowed to have any kind of redemption or do we have to cancel them uh, forever? And I think one of the people I've been really struck by... with all this ongoing stuff about, you know, sexual harassment and rape culture at school, there's an amazing young activist called Soma Sarah, and she created something called Everyone's Invited, 
which is this kind of online sharing of your stories about rape culture, sexual harassment at school. And it's, it's been a big thing. And I've interviewed her a couple of times. And one of the things that's really interesting that she says is that in order to actually change the culture, particularly with with young men, you have to at some point let people move on. You have to educate people. I think it is really um, reductive and I think it's really counterproductive as well to just kind of keep cancelling people. I mean, I was also remember, remember Naz Shah from the Labour Party, mm-hmm. who rightly was really criticised for... Um, uh, making some anti-Semitic comments and sharing some anti-Semitic mm. material. She really, really apologised. But not only did she apologise, she she went and spent time with the Jewish community and she sort of understood what she did. And then she did another big fulsome sort of a, apology. You have to let people kind of, you know, move on from their mistakes. And that is the thing that tr- troubles me. And that's why, to look back to the GB News thing, that's mm. where things like GB News and that side of um, culture, the culture wars, they are getting purchase from this very uh, rigid, unforgiving, quite sort of, um, quite, you know, we like punishing people a lot, but I don't know if that actually helps us all kind of move on. Yeah, and and it's uh, the opposing position to the idea that people should be uh, given no forgiveness and it's one strike and you're out is just that we should discard um, the idea that any of these things can be offensive or wrong. So your choice is either cancel people forever or ignore racist and sexist tweets completely. And surely the, the, the actual approach is to, is yes, to condemn them, but also to allow people to apologise and allow people to move on and allow people to do what Shah did, which is to sort of learn a bit yeah. and say so in public. Yeah. Justin, is this just the way young men are? Do we have to accept it that, you know, when you when before you reach the age of majority, you are going to say terribly stupid things? Um, having been a young man, um, yes, I can uh, I can fully, fully concur with that. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think one thing's interesting as well is, you know, the Internet has now been around long enough that we've got, you know, in some cases, almost two decades of this stuff to look back on. And I think one problem for people as well is that when things are excavated and looked at much later, they're often shorn of any context. And I think, you know, something I'm really conscious of, you know, as someone who was working in the media back then, you know, in the noughties, probably like post Vice magazine, there was a very distinctive kind of tone that became very widespread in sort of, you know, public dialogue and media generally that was sort of almost kind of performatively cruel and, you know, Mm. very aggressively un-PC and I think, you know, that became so much kind of the norm at the time in a lot of, you know, things like style mags and men's mag writing that, you know, there was sort of stuff that was considered fine at the time and looks absolutely horrendous now if you look at it with hindsight. And I think, you know, that's often something that's very difficult to convey to people when these things get, you know, unarchived and dug out. Mm. We've come to the end of this week's bunker, and as the panel head for a warm down and a session in the dentist's chair, it's time for their escape routes. What are the TV, films, music, books, and miscellaneous that are taking their minds away from the nerve wracking world of politics? Aisha, how about you? What's your uh, mental escape route? Well, I've been listening to a lot of Bonnie Reed, which is completely wow. random. <laughs> I know. Okay, all right. Like, I've decided. Nick, Nick of Time is an absolute banger. <laughs> It's she's so good. Like I've become completely obsessed with her, and I've decided that I want to like learn how to play the guitar and try and do kind of country and western karaoke. That's like my new thing that's in my head. What brought this on? 
I don't know. I just, I think I like, um, I was watching a film and there was one of her songs and I think it's like Angel from Montgomery. And I was like, oh, this song's really good. And then I just like fell down a total Bonnie Ray rabbit hole. And I was like, this woman is an absolute legend, a total legend. She's got great hair as well. And she's so cool. Like she's had such an interesting career and, you know, she was kind of down and out and then she sort of came back. She, she's amazing. So that's what I've been, I've been doing a lot of really bad country wailing in my own home. What is it with the Scots and country <laughs> why why is it come on it's because we're always the underdogs but we got a lot well of there's a musicology theory that uh, scottish traditional music does pop up melodically in in country and also in reggae Ooh. so loads of reggae music is basically traditional scottish music just with a completely different rhythm put to it just mm. there you go um justin how about you beat that beat bonnie Raitt. Uh, nothing so wholesome, I'm afraid. Um, and this isn't much of an escape from politics. I've been uh, watching the Netflix documentary on the London Mail Bomber case from the late 90s. Oh, yes. Oh, my word, that's good. I mean, the, the archive work in it is absolutely brilliant. Now, I grew up in London. I lived in London at that time. And the thing that really hit me is that, you know, London basically looked like what you think of as like London in 1983. It looked like that until about 1999. You know, everything mm. looks like it's made from wet cardboard and asbestos. And like, everybody have got some sort of like ongoing medical condition they're walking around in. But my, the two sort of unacknowledged stars of it are the two guys who found the bomb in the market in Brixton. Oh, yeah. And uh, recount how when they were all standing around with two minutes counting down the clock going, oh, my God, there's an effing bomb outside Iceland. Um, in a none more Brixton moment, a wandering crackhead came past, pushed through the cordon, removed the bomb from the holdall and legged it with the holdall. <laughs> That's that's British ingenuity. Great British ingenuity there. That was, I mean, that's the kind of thing GB News should be going big on. The humble, <laughs> the humble British crackhead and his ability to steal a handle when in the face of death. But um, it's uh, no, it's a very very good film, and I would uh, I would recommend if anyone wants a very vivid portrait of just what a grim place London in the late nineties was. It's uh, it's worth watching. Absolutely, it is. Uh, here, how about you? Uh, there's, I, I don't know if you know this, Andrew, but there's a fairly large international football tournament happening. What? Oh, we said uh, that. Tell us about it. Uh, Who's well, playing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, loads of people, loads of people all around Europe. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm watching uh, that a lot. In many ways, I'm slightly furious that I'm recording this now. Oh, yeah, uh, because you because could be it, watching. Uh, it, I could be watching Poland, Slovakia. Uh, and working out what relation I have to either of those countries that I could uh, decide who to be in uh, be in favour of, which would be very exciting. Uh, but yes, I, I will just be watching the Euros and wandering around humming Three Lions and annoying everyone around me. With your little plastic cross of St George hat on. Well yeah. done. Well, my, my escape route is inevitably, and this will shock nobody, it's Loki on Disney+. Plus. Tom Hiddleston is getting, has got his Loki series and... As Marvel's stuff on uh, Disney Plus continues at its best to really push their whole whole thing out into uncharted territories, would you like a Terry Gilliam version of Doctor Who? Well, if you would, this is Loki. It is time travelled crime investigation. And the be best bit of the lot is that um, because he is a, a, a parallel version of himself that's been pulled out of the time stream, they keep referring to him as the Loki variant. And I keep thinking, I've only just got used to the Delta variant. <laughs> what the hell is going on? 
See, so I, I knew that you would choose this, so I chose the Euros instead. But Loki <laughs> is genuinely fantastic. I was Isn't so happy. After Isn't Falcon and Winter Soldier, I was so happy. Yeah, Falcon and Winter Soldier, massive disappointment. This, much more WandaVision. It's wild. It's out there. It looks incredible. The production design is unbelievable. Um, Owen Wilson is fantastic in it. And you, you have no idea what's going to happen. And it's wonderful. And I'm so glad it's around. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Aisha Hazarika, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Justin Quirk, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Aisha, for joining us. It's coming home. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever else you listen to podcasts on. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast, and you will get the podcast early and without ads. You'll get our splendid merchandise. You'll get all kinds of other stuff too. And, of course, backers get an honorary salute on the show. Here are some now. Um, hello, and a big thanks from me to Karen Stenstam, Teresa Nicholchuk and Gemma Sheridan. Uh, best wishes from me to Richard Lawrence, Lucy Winster and Mary-Kate Viola Collins. It's a big thanks from me to Pete Lloyd, Chris Davies and Marcus Spry. And finally, best wishes from me to Maria Kingma, Jennifer Harris and Andrew Budkovitz. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison with Aisha Hazarika, Justin Quirk and Ahir Shah. The assistant producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranovic, with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>